You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day, by the way. I'm Greg Arthur, one of the pastors here, and I think that I can speak for all of us today that we all, all you moms and adoptive moms and foster moms and spiritual moms, a huge debt of gratitude. To paraphrase a verse that we're going to, yeah. To paraphrase a verse that we're going to look at next week, where would we all be if we were all dads? Or we're all kids and none were moms. I'll tell you where, nowhere, that's where, that's where we'd be. Anyway, I speak for all of us non-moms that we could never do what you have done. And we appreciate you and we admire you, and we hope to properly honor you today and every day, and we love you to death. All right, today we're gonna continue in our series called This Blessed Mess, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, uh, the church of Corinth. And if you could sum up the letter, it's a corrective. Paul founded the church in a Greek city, Corinth, in around 51 AD. He spent a year and a half there, and then a couple years after that, he left. And after he left, a couple years later, he hears about how messy things are back in the church. And so Paul writes a letter to be read to the whole church addressing the issues. And Paul would visit them a year later after that, the painful visit, he calls it. Write another letter in 56 AD and then visit them again at least once. Uh, it was messy church life to be sure. In this first letter to the Corinthians, he goes through the issues one by one, starting with divisions in the church in chapter one. You might all remember this, the acceptance of immorality in the church in chapter five, the handling of conflicts between church members in chapter six, marriage and divorce in chapter seven, participation in the culture in chapter eight, and disorderly church life in chapter 11. And then in chapter 12, Paul writes, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be unaware or ignorant as the new King James says. I do not want you to be ignorant. I love that word. Anyway, now I'm well aware I am of the messy church battles Christians have had throughout the ages over spiritual gifts. I once had a conversation with a cousin that illustrates the sides of this conflict. After we shared how we were um, each new Christians, saved by grace through faith. He asked me if by the Spirit I spoke in tongues. And when I said no, he said, so how do you know you've been saved? And I said, the Bible says so. So there you are, right? Both sides right there. Anyway, this topic in 1 Corinthians of spiritual gifts will go on for three chapters. It's such a big deal. It will address the questions the Corinthians had and speak to some of our issues as well. But whatever their original questions were about spiritual gifts, the way Paul answers for three chapters reveals that the real issue behind their questions seems to be about pride in the church. This is something I love about the book of 1 Corinthians. I don't know if you like this. It's like the game show Jeopardy. Are any of you old enough to remember Jeopardy? <laughs> Where the contestants are given an answer from which they have to figure out the question. And from Paul's answers, we figure out that their questions were something like, do showy spiritual gifts show true uh, 
godliness? Or do spiritual gifts make up for um, worldliness? Or maybe it was some form of the question, who's the greatest, by the way, Paul? That primordial question that always lurks under everything we think all the time. Who's the greatest? Whatever the questions were, Paul answers. His answers show that he's dealing with the issue of pride in the church. Whatever we take pride in divides the world into the enlightened, beautiful people and the ignorant heretics. For it's just plain sinful human nature to judge and compare, to condemn and to covet, to see ourselves as superior and take pride in it as if we're the measuring sticks of the universe. Even the disciples fell for it. Remember when they were walking with Jesus after he was transfigured on the mountain in front of just three of them and a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. When Jesus asked them all what they were discussing later on the way when they were walking, the scriptures say, quote, they kept silent for on the way they had been discussing with one another which of them was the greatest. They kept silent for even they knew that they shouldn't have been talking about who's the greatest. But they did so anyway. They were so compelled by pride in them, even with Jesus standing there right in front of them. So when the Corinthian church asked Paul about spiritual gifts, they were asking out of what they prided themselves for, which apparently, if, after we read the rest of the chapters, was apparently it was showy godliness. Now, we bring our own cultural baggage to everything as well. They brought that, we bring this. And while our values may be different, ours are like education and politics and convenience and tr being true to thyself, authenticity, those are values that we hold. We have that same built-in inclination to ask anyway, who's the greatest? And I don't think, I don't think we ask it out loud because it's kind of rude to do that, um, except maybe on sports radio. But we do ask our version of that question now that cuts more to the spirit of this age, which is something like, what makes me special? And when this primordial, who's the greatest, what makes me special, thinking is coupled with talk about spiritual gifts, today it turns into seminars and self-help books and church debates that are all focused on one thing, what is my spiritual gift and how do I find it and how do I unlock my potential but are these the right questions? Would you pray with me as we start? My Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for your goodness, your love, your mercy. Lord, please give me the words to say, manifest your Holy Spirit through me. And give us ears to hear what you say, minds to understand, and hearts to obey, my, my Lord. Help us in every way we need it. In your name we pray, amen. When Paul in the New Testament talked about spiritual gifts. He listed out these 24 gifts of the Holy Spirit, primarily from 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and Ephesians 4. Now they're in your little bulletin if you wanna look. With different, here's an interesting thing, with different lists spelled out for the different churches in Corinth or Rome or Ephesus. So here in our passage today, when Paul answers the Corinthians questions about spiritual gifts, he first says to them, now I don't want you to be ignorant. Then he points out two ways that they might be just a teeny little tiny bit ignorant. 
where they're thinking about spiritual gifts like proud Corinthians, showy Corinthians, and not like humble Christians. So Paul's first point concerning pride and spiritual gifts is this, the gift, the gift of the Spirit is greater than the spiritual gifts. The gift of the Spirit is greater than the spiritual gifts. And here's the passage. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. First point, when he's talking to them, he doesn't bring up the spiritual gifts, and he doesn't slam them with a biblical truth that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Instead, he starts by reminding them how they used to be led astray by mute idols to every detestable thing. Paul says, hey, Corinthians, I don't want you to be unaware, but remember how crazy you were? Remember how astray you went? Remember that how you were like all the other crazy, unsaved pagans out there, all singing together that classic rock song, I'm free to do what I want in the old time, nearly 2,000 years before the Rolling Stones were even born? Remember the temple prostitution and the adultery, the coveting and the drunkenness, the insult, the, the, the lawsuits and the swindling, the cross-dressing and the homosexuality, the eating meat offered to idols and every other kind of moral corruption. Remember that? Remember how you were so notorious for immorality that the Greeks came up with a new word for fornication, Corinthiazomai. When you get named, after, anyway, remember how much you were against God, how alienated you were from him, how enslaved you were to the evil desires of the flesh and the world like the rest of Corinth. Do you remember that? But now you say Jesus is Lord. And you say it not only because it's true, but also because when God saved you, he gave you the promised Holy Spirit of God. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You are no longer led astray, you have the Holy Spirit. You no longer do anything you want, you have the Holy Spirit. You no longer say stupid stuff like Jesus is accursed or walk blindly in the darkness of this world or live like everyone else in Corinth. You are now a new creation, a different species of humanity because you have the gift the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's what makes you special. That's what makes you great. If there's anything to take pride in, it's that. In other words, the spiritual gifts given by the Holy Spirit aren't what make any of us great. The spiritual gift of the Holy Spirit given by the Father, that's what makes all of us who believe special and great in this life. And this is Paul's main point. Now concerning spiritual gifts, the variety of gifts aren't the prize. The prize is God's good gift in the same spirit, given without measure to everyone who believes. You might remember when Jesus said to a bunch of dads, which of you would give a snake or a scorpion to your son if he asked for a fish or an egg? Then he said, if you, being evil, <laughs> know how to give good gifts to your children, 
How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So when Paul says to the Corinthians, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit, he's reminding the Corinthians that Jesus himself said that the Holy Spirit is the good gift. Just how good is this gift? Um, words don't do it justice, but I'm going to try. Because of the gift of the Holy Spirit in this life, we will no longer be lost and wandering, wasting time, subject to every passing fad, captured by every worldly lie, twisted by every evil manipulation. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. And the Lord said, your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it, when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. And Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world. He who believes in me shall not walk in the darkness, but have the light of life. That guide, that voice, that light is the Holy Spirit in us. Next one, because of the gift of the Holy Spirit in this life, while after we're saved until we go on to glory, we will never be abandoned, alone, friendless, isolated, forgotten, no matter we, where we go in this life, no matter what happens to us. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit forever lives with you and will be in you. Do you, do you, you know how amazing that is? You know, there was times in history in which the Holy Spirit was in one prophet and maybe a king, two people in the whole world. And now the Holy Spirit is in each one who believes in him. He has given us his Holy Spirit. It's like the long promised and desired gift that humanity has wanted, we have. The scriptures say, do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And Jesus said, I will not leave you orphans. So a little story, Lori's grandmother, as she began to lose herself to Alzheimer's, had a dream. And she said in her dream, there was nothing to see, just like you, know, you can't recognize anything in Alzheimer's. In every direction, all was white, and flat and featureless, even the sky, except on the horizon there was a cross. <laughs> so she walked to the cross and knelt before it in her dream. The one constant companion, the one who cannot be closer to us, the one who stays in a poor old lady's mind, the one who will not leave us forgotten or alone for even one second is God himself the indwelling Holy Spirit. Okay, next one. Because of the gift of the Holy Spirit, in this life we will be changed. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will, quote, teach you all things and bring to your remembrance what he has said. That means we'll have new ears to hear the Lord speak as he brings to our remembrance his word. And we'll have new minds to understand what he means as he teaches us all things and new hearts to obey as he transforms us to be like him. The Bible says, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Next, because of the gift of the Holy Spirit in this life, we will be safe and secure for it is God who holds on to us all the way. We will not be conquered by hardships in the end. We will not be crushed by the world in the end. 
The scriptures say that the Holy Spirit will help us in our weakness, and when we do not know how to pray, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The scriptures say we'll be assured and reassured every step of the way. For when we first believed, from that moment to the very end, when we walk into glory, for it says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed, like kept in safekeeping, with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, the down payment in this life of our inheritance in the next life until we acquire possession of it. And this security cannot be undone. It is certain, for the Lord says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then finally, because of the gift of the Holy Spirit in this life, we will, are no longer alienated from God. For God is at home with us. God dwells in us. We belong to him and with him. We are born again to be his beloved daughters and sons, adopted into his family. The scriptures say, all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And we won't doubt it because, it says in the scriptures, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. In this life, on this side of eternity, while in this dying body, while in this fallen world, God the Father gives us his Holy Spirit to walk with us every step of the way until we see Jesus in paradise. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for you are with me. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Holy Spirit with us and in us, that's what matters. That's what makes us a new creation. That's what distinguishes us from the rest of humanity. That's what ends superiority. That's what heals divisions. This gift makes us great. This gift of his new life, his eternal life, his forgiveness of sins, his cancellation of guilt, his perfect love, his righteousness that is credited to us by faith, and his Holy Spirit in us given to us in this life for all who believe in Jesus. That's Paul's first point. Paul's second point concerning pride and spiritual gifts is this. The spiritual gifts are given to the church, not to us. Now, here's the scripture. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same spirit. There are varieties of effects, but the same spirit who works all things and all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. Paul is saying what spiritual gifts are and what they're for. He says that the gifts, the supernatural gifts and ministries and the resulting effects of God's power are all manifestations of the Holy Spirit. And manifest means to bring something hidden to light. So Paul is saying God works in us to show his Holy Spirit in us, to show it through us to the world. 
And Paul says he does this for the common good, meaning the church, since the whole letter is about the church. So the spiritual gifts are not for us, but for the church to build it, to protect it, to sustain it, to refine it, to plant it again and again until all that God has promised is manifested into existence. In other words, the spiritual gifts are not for us and they're not from us, but they're through us. We're not the gifts, we're the deliverers of the gifts. We're not providers of what the church needs, we're deliverers of what the church needs. We're like Amazon drivers. Say there's a household that needs a laptop and a new coat and cat food. The Amazon driver who delivers the laptop is not more special than the one who delivers the cat food. Likewise, a preacher is not more important than the one who encourages or prays or speaks in tongues or watches babies or takes out the trash because everything is necessary in the household. We who have the gift of the Holy Spirit in us are the Amazon drivers of the various manifestations of the Holy Spirit to the household of God. But since we're Amazon drivers, there's no room for showy pride in the church. Yep. However, there is room for pleasure in the church. Paul says the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each of us for the common good. You're not going to believe this, but the Greek word for common good is simphero, from which comes the related word symphony. It's kind of beautiful to me to conceive of the church as a symphony composed by God the Father and orchestrated by God the Son and performed by God the Spirit through the members of the orchestra who each play different parts on different instruments. Any of you playing in, in an orchestra? I bet there's great pleasure to be in one. You know, music's already super powerful. And I know from being in a band, not an orchestra, but being in a band, that playing music together is joyful. But in my experience, and I've only had a few experiences, nothing compares to the hearing in person of a full orchestra playing a symphony. The joy, the perfection, the beauty of so many talented and dedicated and trained people playing as one. I almost can't listen to a symphony orchestra without a tear. I can only imagine how moved I would be in spirit if I was in a symphony orchestra. The pleasure of being something so beautiful, of being in unison with the whole orchestra, of applauding the director who orchestrated it all. In the same way in the church, there's pleasure in being part of something beautiful in living in unison, in praising Jesus who orchestrates it all. It's his church, it's his symphony. All right, let's look at the rest of Paul's argument that he's making here. But to each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the spirit, to another the word of knowledge according to the spirit, to another faith by the same spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills. To one is given this, to another is given that, to another something else, 
Paul talks about spiritual gifts like they're assignments, not talents uncovered or giftings to show off. He gives no special importance to any of the gifts mentioned. This means that no one can esteem someone with one spiritual gift over someone who has a different spiritual gift. What makes me special? It's not the spiritual gifts that the Lord assigns just as he wills. Instead, who's the greatest? All who receive the, the gift of the Holy Spirit by faith in Jesus. This also means that while the gifts are not of special importance, they're necessary. Apparently, these particular spiritual gifts, along with any others that Paul did not mention, like preaching, I'm sure they did preaching, or service together, or mercy, or giving, or prayer, all were necessary to build the Corinthian church. For it is the Holy Spirit who determines what gifts to give and where to give them, and the same Spirit distributes the gifts to each one in the church just as he wills. All right, that's Paul's opening answer to the Corinthian church concerning spiritual gifts. He doesn't tell them what they are. He doesn't say how great one of them is over another. In essence, the gift given to us of the Spirit is the prize. That's his first point. And the second point is spiritual gifts given through us are for the building of the church. Therefore, there's no room for showy pride in the church. Okay, there are a few implications for us. Since God is building his church for his purposes, in his way, distributing to each one just as he wills, I think for us individually it comes down to being useful to him. That doesn't mean that the only thing about us that matters to God is whether we're useful. He loves us so much that he gave his son to die on the cross for our sins. He desires so much to be in communion with us that he gave us his Holy Spirit to be in us and with us forever. He desires and wants so much to have us to have the pleasure of being useful to him that he gives us the honor of participating with him in his redemption of the whole fallen world through the church. He gives us the thing to do. He lets us do it. So regarding spiritual gifts, instead of asking what is my spiritual gift and how can I use my talents, the better question to ask is am I useful to him? And we'll end today with a few ways to be useful to God in building his church. First, availability is more important than ability. Generally, we think natural giftedness makes us useful. And in some ways that's true. For some assignments require a level of God-given natural ability. However, there are really good reasons why natural giftedness is not necessary. First, the Lord will equip whoever he calls with abilities beyond their natural giftedness. Once my wife Lori heard the Lord say to her in her mind, as she envisioned Jesus catching a fish with his hand in a pond, she heard him say, I will make you able. God enables. We don't know. We don't know. We don't have natural abilities to do what God wants us to do. Second, when we can't, second, another reason why natural abilities aren't enough is when we can't depend on natural abilities on our own selves, it's then that we go to God and depend on him. 
which is what he wants us to do. I had a friend once who said about her depression, why would the Lord take away the one thing that makes me go to him? It's just as the Bible says, power is perfected in weakness, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Moreover, natural ability is nowhere, anywhere near enough. God's plan for redemption of the whole fallen world through the church is too intricate and complicated and expansive for anyone to have even the slightest idea what he's doing. Even what he's doing in just yourself. It's hard to even know what he's doing there. It's so complicated. Much less in the lives of everyone on earth throughout all of history. It's 9D chess that only the Lord can do. Nothing is straightforward. With opportunity, there's trouble. With failure, there's healing. With surrender, there's victory. For his plans are more than just getting things done. He's redeeming the world. Paul said that he wasn't naturally gifted at speaking. He says it a number of times. I'm not a good speaker. And yet the Lord picked him picked for him the spiritual gifts of preaching and teaching that involve speaking throughout the whole world for his whole life. Paul rightly asked, who is sufficient for these things regarding the work of the church? Who indeed? To each of us, the Lord assigns a task to play a part in the symphony, to participate in what he's doing. The question isn't, am I gifted enough? Because I'm not. The question is, am I available enough? Here are a few questions I came up with to ask myself about availability. Am I an available person or am I overbooked or distracted or oblivious? Uh, next question, when interrupted, am I irritable or charitable? Next one, when are, some, are there some things that I obviously have the ability to do but I just won't do? Next one, is it easy for me to be under authority or do I have to be the boss? And finally, do I have to be recognized or can I serve unnoticed? The question is, am I available enough? That's what makes us useful. Next is planning is more important than plans. Eisenhower once said regarding preparing for battle, he was a general in World War II and president. He said, plans are worthless, but planning is everything. In other words, it's not particularly useful to have everything scripted out, figured out. I'll do this, and then I'll do that, and then when God does this, I'll do that, and I'll be right where I'm supposed to be. I've planned it all out. I've got five years planned out, and after that, I'm going to do this. It's not useful because plans fall apart on the first day, which leaves us either disappointed because they're not coming out or delusional as we keep on pressing on toward a set of plans that don't work. It's also not useful because the Holy Spirit leads us in the way that we should go, irrespective of our plans. It's his plans, not our plans. However, planning, preparing to be useful to God is something worthwhile. What might prepare us? I think the practices that align our hearts and minds with Jesus, like learning his word and continuing in prayer, being in fellowship with believers, working out our salvation, fleeing immorality, essentially anything that develops in us the character that is called in the Bible the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
being prepared is to be useful. Here are a few questions I ask myself about preparation. I'm in, am I in the world, word daily, learning how to, as it says in the scriptures, accurately handle the word of truth? Next question, am I learning the word so that the Holy Spirit can bring it to my remembrance? Next, do I pray about anything and everything, or do I feel too guilty to pray? Next, am I forgiving, forbearing, and gentle, or am I critical, angry, or fearful? And finally, am I more and more seeing that I will flee immorality and pursue righteousness? These are signs, these are, these are acts of preparation. Okay, finally, last point about being useful to God and building his church. The church needs everyone. I think normally we decide whether something is worthwhile to do by whether we get something out of it. But since we're the Amazon drivers, of the manifestations of the Holy Spirit to the household of God, the question isn't, what do I get out of it? Rather, it's whether someone needs what the Lord has given me to manifest. Without one of us, it's like a symphony played without the first chair violin or the triangle guy. There's a scene in the movie Amadeus, I don't know if you've seen it, where Mozart's rival Salieri is so moved by the beauty of one of Mozart's symphonies that he says the music is, quote, finished as no music is finished. Displace just one note and there would be diminishment. Displace one phrase and the structure would fall. Everyone is needed. Lose just one person and there would be diminishment. This means here at Creekside, we all, each and every one of us, must show up to church every Sunday, never missing a service. And we all should join a community group and always participate. And we all should lay aside all our differences and seek forgiveness from anyone we've wronged, all for the common good. All right, here are the questions I came up for myself about showing up. Do I give myself reasons to show up or do I look for reasons not to show up? Do I sometimes tell little white lies about not showing up? Do I attend church every week? Am I a full participant in a small group? And finally, this one, who has manifested the Holy Spirit to me? All right, church. If you need God in your life, if you need more of God in your life, if you want to be part of his symphony, if you want to take part in what God is building, or if you've never yet heard and have had God in your life, I'm here to manifest the Holy Spirit in me to say that it is true, that the Lord God of heaven and earth offers to give all of himself to you. You only need to ask. All right. I hope to see each and every one of you next Sunday. <laughs> Let's pray. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, you are my Savior, my healer, my redeemer, my refuge, my king, and my God. You are merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. You are gentle and lowly in heart. You are the light of life. You are the bread of life. 
You gave your life to forgive my sins and give me eternal life. Thank you for giving your spirit to be with us and in us. And may we manifest your spirit to your glory. Amen.